Hello, Totally Sort of listeners. Darren here. This week on the podcast, I have a Bandcamp story from last week. While Chris has been pondering whether there is still a place for CDs in a world of digital libraries and music streaming services. In the Week in Geek, I have a review of Westworld Season 2 thus far, and Chris has one for Legion Season 2. Don't worry, these ones are spoiler-free, for you and for each other's benefit. I had heard that this season of Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. had the best movie event crossover thus far with Avengers Infinity War. I binge-watched the second half of the season to check it out. I no longer trust those sources. Finally, Chris played the card-drafting game Treasure Hunter and has good things to report. We finish off with some news from around the geek world and a take-home top three. I reminisce about my three favorite childhood toys, and we both pine a little for a simpler time. It's all coming up next on the Totally Sort of Podcast. Welcome to Totally Sorta, the podcast. It's sort of like a review show and totally like catching up with your best friend. I'm Chris. And I'm Darren. We'll let you know what you totally need to check out and what is sort of worth skipping. How you doing this week, my friend? I was good. I was supposed to be super busy and then I wasn't. Ah, nice. I've been uh, hosting in-laws all week, which has been fun, but not uh, terribly beneficial to my consumption of geeky media. I, on the other hand, last week had a whole bunch of things that I wanted to see, which I got a chance to see this week. Got anything totally random before we jump into the, the weekend geek? My oldest son was away at what I like to refer to as band camp. Okay. Uh, because It's a school board run camp because it's running while school's still in, where he basically goes to a camp up north for a week. They have something like five hours of musical instruction every day, which culminates in a concert when you go pick them up. Yeah. It was, uh, it was great. They were really good. He's uh, been playing saxophone now for two years and is very impressive. Uh, more so, and this will embarrass him if he ever actually listened to the podcast, which he doesn't, but like he <laughs> went from, as a younger kid, being afraid of being around strange kids which i think is pretty common with younger kids sure but to the extent where when he started elementary school the bathroom on the floor with the older kids uh, was broken for a lengthy period of time so the older kids had to come up to the younger kids floor to use the bathroom Mm -hmm. and so he just wouldn't go to the bathroom all day because he didn't want to run into older kids (laughs) and it's kind of like just that idea of just naturally growing up or just to see him come out of that and be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to take off for a week at a camp up north with kids from all over the school board that I don't even know. Nice. And just having a good time, learning a lot of music, obviously, and just putting on an impressive concert with all these kids. Yeah, that's cool. I've, I I will admit I've seen some videos of him playing, and uh, he is pretty awesome. And this is coming from someone who uh, actually doesn't really tend to like woodwinds or sax. So, uh, yeah. How about you? You have any uh, thoughts or activities beyond our usual topics? Well, I've been kind of ruminating on uh, on music and media since last week we were talking about concerts and bands and we were also kind of touched on uh, the physical media aspect of comic books. So this week, um, kind of in between different things, I've been working on a project to, uh, to rip to CD and upload to the cloud um, my, any of my music collection that I can't get on streaming services. So I've been thinking a lot about CDs and just what they do or don't mean to me. And I've come to the conclusion that uh, they are a completely obsolete artifact to me. I really have no emotional or nostalgic attachment to them at all. Yeah, I I feel the same way. I still have CDs because there were some... I got rid of almost all mine years ago. But there were some that were... You know, I've collected all of the CDs of this band, so I kept them, but Mm -hmm. I honestly can't remember the last time I actually listened to a physical CD. Yeah, it was bizarre because, uh, you know, this 
because I was kind of inventorying and looking for, for gaps and things like that, I was really kind of carefully noticing every CD that I had in my collection. And what was really weird was uh, we we painted the living room a couple of years ago. And at that time, I took these sh- the CDs all and boxed them all up. And they've been in boxes since then. And when I pulled them out, I realized that I had like about eight or ten CDs that I had obviously bought in the last year of when I had CDs that I had never even listened to in CD form. I think I've listened to those bands. But so, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to be... Uh, you know, culling and getting ready to purge this huge collection that uh, I really couldn't care less about getting rid of. I mean, maybe monetarily a little bit, but, uh, you know, it's not like vinyl or even cassettes. They just really don't have any hold on me. When you said that you, you're sort of downloading and holding on to were things you couldn't find on streaming services, what is, uh, like, what are you finding that you can't get to streaming? So, um... It wasn't much. It was largely uh, world music and some really, a few little Canadian indie bands and a few kind of really out there punk bands. But I think I maybe had about um, 30 albums worth of stuff uh, all together out of maybe two or 300 that I couldn't find. So, and those were, as I said, probably mostly world music. And I wasn't too surprised not to find them on there. All right, that makes sense. All right, well, uh, why don't we get into our regular scheduled uh, geeky goodness, which would be The Week in Geek. Let's do it. All right, I have two TV shows, so I'm going to go first with one so that we can break them up. Sure. One of the two shows which I had been trying to catch up on and haven't had time to do so is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Okay, and has it gotten any better? I think the last time you told me about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., they were in a bit of a uh, syndrome of doing kind of uh, long, protracted storylines that got completely erased. Yeah, they did a... The first half of the season was this whole storyline that I discussed earlier where they wind up 25 years in the future. Yeah. And my concern was that eventually they'd get back and there would be no repercussions. It would just be the continuation of the story. And? But they did a good job of tying what happened in the future back in because it turns out that the event that caused sort of the destruction of the Earth that they came upon when they went to the future was like imminently happening when they got back to earth. And in fact, it was tied into the infinity war, uh, occurrences. So they did a nice job of making it have consequences. And, and, uh, then my real sort of motivation to get caught up on the series, because I was half a season behind was that I had heard, a uh, few and read, I guess read a few posts online talking about how the uh, what I talked about being one of my favorite things in the show, which is how it uh, each season will integrate in some way with like the big Marvel movie of the year. Right. And I'd heard really good things about its integration with Infinity War. And so I was I was eager to see that, and I was sadly disappointed. Mm. And I, I went back to thinking like, what were they talking about? That was terrible. <laughs> Do they, do they, I don't know. I, I'm not going to get into details. So disappointed overall, anything, any cool takeaways or teasers for next season? No. And uh, so I'm going to, I am going to speak a little bit about why it was disappointing. So there, there was a great lead in um, to this event that they came back from the future being tied into the infinity war. There were a couple of cool episodes that kind of, bled into it they actually had a thing where they showed Thanos's ship coming and it tied into the storyline and up to that point it all felt like very agents of shieldy like it was a intrigue with shield and hydra and aliens and it was quite good and then they got through the whole thing but the storyline synced up with the movie timeline mm-hmm so that events in the show were happening on the same day, essentially. Well, exactly the same day that Thanos was inv- and his forces were invading the Earth. Hmm. 
which was cool. And then, you know, without giving away the ending, then they go, they wrap up their storyline and go forward by the timeline in it to some point after. Mm-hmm. And all of the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. are still there. Right. So that there's kind no, of... There's no discussion about, hey, it's kind of weird that half of the people on the planet blinked away. And, and it was just like, why did you do all this buildup to then ignore the events of Infinity War? So do you do you think they were trying to not spoil the movie for people? No, because it didn't come out. Well, I don't know. It didn't come out till after the movie. Like they specifically timed it so that it would get close to the time of the movie. The movie would come out. They took a hiatus and then they showed the end where it actually synced up with the events of the mm-hmm. movie. So there were no spoilers. I mean, I guess if you hadn't seen the movie in the in the preceding couple of weeks, there might have been, but there was no pre-movie spoilers Hmm. i went online and started looking at like some explanation as to why they ignored the events of infinity war after building all the way up to it and from from some comments from the creators it apparently the current brain trust at agents of shield is that yeah we're we're we're, we take place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe but we're not directly tied to its continuity so that we can do stuff like this and I'm like, that doesn't make any sense to me because all of the Marvel properties have always said this is one universe. They've always yeah. referenced it. And then I looked further and the explanation I saw from other people was that they had no um, renewal <laughs> for a season six um, until well after they finished the season. And the explanation is that they didn't want to leave their fans with half of the team blinking out and then never be able to come back and come to some resolution of that. So they wanted to do an ending to season five that could also serve as a series ender if they didn't get renewed, which it did. But I mean, that may explain it, but it doesn't really just doesn't sync with my my enjoyment of the idea that we're talking about one world and with the way all of the previous seasons did integrate with the movie. So I was unimpressed and I didn't really understand people's commentary that this was like one of the best, maybe those people had only seen the, the, the ones proceeding and leading into it because those were really good, but the wrap up left a lot to be desired. Hmm. Bummer. All right. Did you watch anything this week or do you've got other things to talk about? Well, I thought I would tell you a little bit about Legion because I know you've been wanting to see it. And I just uh, tonight watched what I thought was the last episode of the season. And uh, it wasn't. So I had a little bit of disappointment there. But hopefully that disappointment is going to be assuaged next week when I get the last episode. All right. So just by way of update, I have seen the first episode of the second season, but that's as far as I've gone. Okay. So I was really skeptical of this show pulling off a good second season last after last year. Uh, the first season was fantastic, but I thought this was kind of a one-trick pony, and the, the premise and the setup were so great, I, I really couldn't see them extending it out. And ten episodes into season two, I have to say, it's been a fantastic ride. It's, it's a very, very different season. Um, it feels much more episodic than the first season which really was one big arc and it's interesting because it it still is very much one overall story but they decided to make a concerted effort this season to give a lot of attention to the other characters in the show they've expanded the cast and they've really given almost episode by episode every character an episode to shine So it's been a really interesting approach this season. Yeah, I wondered because episode one at least felt pretty standard fare to the first season. Mm -hmm. And But I've seen postings without spoilers from people either saying, I I have no idea what's happening or I don't understand what's going on and how does this link up to season one. Yeah, it's uh, they really kind of doubled down on the weirdness and ambiguity of the show, which is great because that was one of the best best things about watching the first season was really just not knowing what was happening, what was coming next, uh, being just kind of completely caught off guard by 
story twists and visual elements and they've just continued with that trend this season and it it takes you on some really weird paths but there's again great great single episodes especially uh, with Sid the relationship between David and Sid continues to be fascinating and compelling and moving I will confess that uh, I think I, I was like 15 episodes into this show between last year and this year before it clicked to me that, uh, or the character Sid is Sid Barrett, which uh, is a little reminiscent of the crazy uh, ex-member of Pink Floyd. So I don't know, that was just a nice little touch that I was kind of smacking myself for not noticing earlier. Yeah. But Aubrey Plaza is fantastic again this year. She gets even more kind of um, personas to play and more to do with them and there's just there's a lot of stuff to enjoy i've been a little up and down on the series this season because the the fact that it's so kind of jumping around character to character i'm i was getting a little dubious about whether they were gonna bring it home in a good way but i think they are building to a very very good conclusion so uh yeah you've got some great tv ahead of you Excellent. I'm glad to hear that it's still weird and and wonderful because we talked about this earlier, but the the success or at least the successful uh, performance of this show is what I talked about convincing me that maybe you could do an Electra Assassin uh, movie or show. Yeah, no, the the weirdness is I wouldn't say doubled. I would say the the weirdness is like quadrupled this season. <laughs> Sounds good. And I do get uh, a thrill and I find myself sitting through the credits every time just to see Bill Sankovich's name uh, as one of the co-creators. Yeah, uh, they also have continued to to make some amazing creative choices in terms of the music, pacing, and uh, yeah, like every episode is almost like a little art film. They're they're much more standalone, but they're they're all part of the main story. But uh, there's some stylistically very very different episodes. It's pretty cool. Right on. Well, I in definitely enjoyed the first episode and look forward to moving through the other. I guess ten. Yeah. So uh, by the same token, I guess you have been watching Westworld, which I have I'm really excited about, but haven't seen a single episode of yet. Yeah, I think I am now, well, I'm caught up, which is seven episodes out of ten. And, uh, I mean, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I have compliments and criticisms, but the criticisms are not particularly harsh. If you like the first season, you're going to like the second season. Mm -hmm. It uh, maintains a lot, of the, a lot of the same things that are good about it. It perhaps isn't as fresh feeling as the first season. Sure. Like uh, I think I put it this way, you know what? There are certainly times where the writing, the acting, and the and the way they play it out is just as good or better than the first season. But there are times when it isn't. Uh, Thandie Newton, who plays Maeve, is still fantastic. But I found at some points the writing and plotting of her storyline is sort of floundering a little bit. Evan Rachel Wood, who plays Dolores. Also, I mean, she's playing essentially a completely different character now that the mm -hmm. after the transformation from the end of the second of the first season, and she's uh, just really shines in this sort of new role. Nice. But uh, at times, I think her dialogue writing is a little weak. They always have her speaking in sort of vagaries and riddles and prophetic phraseology that <laughs> seems a little odd uh, or you know wordy or just ambiguous yeah it's hard to pull that off in a good way yeah so then with regards to and i'm not going to spoil the story you haven't seen it people are still watching it but uh, just in terms of some of the things that i think have been good and bad one of the things that kind of struck me is that the first season at least for me was like a bit of a commentary on our sort of cultural revelry and violence taken to its extreme sure yeah. And to some extent, you could see that sort of as a criticism of that just sort of glorification of violence. Well, the second season is really just all of that violence that it seems like they might have been criticizing in the first season. You know, it's just here's the first season was kind of a commentary and criticism of a culture of violence that just wants to see the, the violence scale upped mm -hmm. in the case of Westworld to like actual participation. But the second season is just 
nonstop violence. Hmm. I kind of saw some irony in watching it, thinking that. Uh, the story the story is still really well written. You get the same complexity as the first season. You get, again, uh, the double narrative uh, and two different timelines. And that, if I said that about the first season, it might have been a spoiler because it wasn't clear. This time, I don't know, either because they are so close in time that it would be obvious or because... Like they knew people were going to expect it and made no attempts to disguise it. It's like right out there in the front that you're talking about two okay. different timelines. There's no attempt to disguise it. There's no like they give you the clear delineation of the two timelines. So nice. Uh, with regards to the complexity of the story, it is still a uh, really well written and complex story. I do feel like there's been a little more hand holding this season to the extent that every once in a while, they have thrown in a scene where a character basically explains what's going on. Like, like flat out gives a monologue explaining what's going on. And I was like, that's just <laughs> like, I don't need to be handheld that much. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised. Cause I mean, um, when something gets a fair bit of success, uh, I think Westworld had that success, not because of that ambiguity, but despite it, and I know uh, a lot of people who kind of watched it and went, that was good, but I'm still not completely sure I got it. But there, there's, a, there's some training wheels to help people uh, in this one. Lastly, I'll just say these are criticisms for the sake of having something to say about it, but I'm quite enjoying it and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how the final three episodes wrap up. Cool. couple of quick questions for you on it. One, do we have any interesting new characters this year? Without spoiling it too much, I, I like there are some new characters, but they more uh, weave in and out of the story because of uh, where they are traveling. And there is a really interesting, uh, just not interesting, but very clever overlapping of characters from the first season and characters and new characters in a very interesting way. They tie them together. And that was really kind of fun. But there's no real, like, this is a brand new character who's playing a major role. Hmm. Okay. And the other thing was, had you made this connection, and maybe it was perfectly obvious to you all along, but I had never realized until quite recently when I saw his name in print, was that uh, James Marsden, uh, who plays Teddy on Westworld, was Cyclops in the first couple of X-Men movies. Yeah, I did see that. I, it's perfectly obvious once it was pointed out to me, but, uh, you know, a little bit of age, a little bit of bulk, and uh, it looks like a t totally different person. I don't know, Teddy was kind of Scott Summers from the first couple of X-Men movies, or even from the early 60s, 70s comics. Yeah, I don't know. It was just a, kind of a neat surprise to me. So, anyways, I will definitely be looking forward to that. Great. Um, you have had time for games? Yeah, I um I was over at a buddy's place last night and we got a second playthrough on uh, a fun little game called Treasure Hunter. This is a fairly lightweight drafting game. So for uh listeners who may not be big gamers, um a drafting game is where you kind of get a hand of cards, you pick one to keep, you pass your hand on, and you keep going and it's it's the cards that you choose out of each hand that are going to sort of determine your game. Um, this is a pretty cool little game, and I think it's really flown under the radar for a lot of people because it was published by Queen Games, who publish a lot of very run-of-the-mill, safe, predictable-looking kind of games. But it was designed by Richard Garfield, who's the designer of oh, Magic nice. the Gathering. So it's a pretty cool game. It plays in under an hour, and it's a game where you've kind of got three sets of cards that you're bidding to win. And you you win each in each category by just having the highest point value in like red, blue, or green, which sounds really straightforward. But for each of those three categories, there's a prize for the highest bid and a prize for the lowest bid. And the treasures that come out in each category, some of them are good and some of them are bad. So in any given game, you might want to be the highest in a category or you might not want to be the highest. And conversely, you might want to be the lowest or you might very much not want to be the lowest. There's a lot of interaction and a lot of unpredictability. 
as you go around, uh, you know, you're basically playing out warriors uh, and characters that have just different points. Um, there's not a lot of interaction in terms of the, the cards, but just in terms of like just the drafting itself, what you choose to get versus what you choose to give to someone else. There's a lot of eye rolling and groaning of, oh, I can't believe you stuck me with that card. It's a it's a really cool little game. So um, sorry, number of players uh, for ideal gameplay. Um, supposedly it plays up to six. I was kind of reading a little bit to see. Uh, we've played it with four players both times, and it's been quite good with that number. Um, I think it might be a little too random with five or six players, but it was awesome with four. And and like I said, it was um pretty quick and i think it was easy enough you could get a non-gamer into it pretty easily it's uh, a little bit heavier than sushi go but not as heavy as seven wonders if you're familiar with uh, some other popular drafting games and really delightful art too the artist is marcus ert who um i really didn't know him from anything else in particular but it's got a really nice cartoony fantasy art and quite cheap by uh, modern board game standards. I think you can pick it up for 30 bucks most places. So worth a look. Right on. I like uh, I like the drafting mechanic if it's done with uh, sufficient simplicity to make it move quickly. Yeah, and this one, there's, there's a lot of randomness in it. Um, like you can basically, you draft your hand and then you have to play everything in your hand, basically. So you can be forced to play something that just ruins your your round, but it's only five rounds of the game and then it's over. So if you're not looking for something with a lot of depth, but just a lot of uh, a lot of twists and turns and fun, uh, this is a good one. So uh, check out Treasure Hunter. Great. So I think that's our week in geek. I think we're gonna move from there into some news roundup for the week. <laughs> I have items, you have items. Do you want to start, or shall I? Yeah, this week, everything that I read about seems to be about uh, prequels and remakes and extensions, and some of them I'm excited about, some of them not so much. Did you hear that uh, HBO has greenlit a Game of Thrones prequel series? I had heard that briefly. I mean, after they announced sort of when the last season of game of thrones would come out there was this like they had five series in various levels of discussion yeah it's crazy i guess that with this one they're going thousands of years into the past which basically means you know they can use as much or as little continuity as they want uh, which is probably a good thing because you know initially my reaction was well i'd rather just see a new fantasy series than see them you know, trying to string out Game of Thrones. But it sounds like they've given themselves leeway to do some interesting creative stuff that really is not beholden to the existing series. So, yeah, I'll give it a fair shake. Yeah, you could do a fantasy series about the fall of Valyria that would have almost no tie to the continuity other than that eventually it's got to be destroyed in some way that leaves the area toxic for a thousand years but i mean what happens before that who knows well i mean uh, martin's kind of built a world like tolkien that has you know a rich backstory and they could there are i think a few settings or or phases or legends that they could tap into uh, like the building of the wall or lots of things like that that could be interesting to explore Yeah, going back just a little bit to, like, Robert's Rebellion or something would lead you to have to do a lot of tie-in continuity, but going back thousands of years leaves it pretty wide open. Yeah, so hopefully hopefully they make that fly. I think I have no problem with them doing some more uh, swords and sorcery and uh, blood and guts, uh, blood and guts and nudity kind of content like that, but yeah, fingers crossed. How about you? Uh, what all? What mine are... is, sorry, mine is also a sequel remake. Uh, I don't know if you'd heard a while ago there was uh, the first indication that they were going to do a Joker uh, origin story, yeah, as a movie. So that's been floating around for a while, and it was supposed to be a non DC universe continuity film. So it was just going to it was going to be a uh, Joaquin Phoenix has been bouncing around as the name for the Hmm. person to play the Joker in that. Although at one point it was like 
Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> were were floating around, but the most recent uh, has been Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker. That's still floating around. Now they've apparently, according to reports this week, greenlit uh, for a Jared Leto solo Joker movie that would not be an origin story. It would just be a Joker standalone film. Wow. Uh, that that makes me sad inside a little bit. Yeah, and it's... I wonder... I mean, it's funny, because if you look at... Uh, I kind of looked at some people who were critical of this, and it was like, well, uh, although Suicide Squad was not a huge success, it actually made $90 million worldwide more than Justice League did, so... <laughs> Yeah. Why not mine that vein? Yeah, I that was... Man, I, I hate to just trash on DC movies for the sake of it, but honestly, I feel like Suicide Squad wasn't great, but shoehorning the Joker in was probably one of the, the poorer elements of it. It really did nothing for the movie. The Joker should have been the villain. Yeah, that would have made more sense. Uh, I also, uh, my my problem when I, I just can't stand the visual look of, of the new kind of Limp biscuit Joker. I, it, I just, I thought it was like a publicity stunt when they put out the poster of him like yeah. that. And I thought it was kind of fun as a one-off riff, like for a poster. I didn't think that was actually going to be the character design in the movie. And I don't know. I, I think creatively it, it kind of almost makes sense that he might be like that but it just offends my my traditional sensibilities of that's not what the Joker's supposed to look like. Yeah, I know. I heard the uh, one of my favorite criticisms of the that look for the Joker was all the tattoos. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, Mark Bernardin uh, from Fat Man on Batman who said, the Joker is not the kind of guy who can sit still for long enough to put any of those tattoos on his body. Hmm. Yeah, that's funny. All right. In other sequel news, uh, apart, apparently um, they're working on extended universe slash reboots slash expansions for both the Kingsman series and the Kick-Ass series of movies. I know my reaction to this was a big fat, eh. How about you? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, I'd go see another Kingsman movie, but I don't know if that's what they're talking about as opposed to let's tell other stories in the same universe. Kingsman, they're talking about one more sequel, one prequel for The Statesman, which I I wasn't terribly thrilled with, and uh, an eight to ten part miniseries set in the Statesman universe. <laughs> so I don't know. That's a whole lot of spinoff. I kind of half liked the second one, but it was pretty sloppy. Like it was, it was fun, but it was like getting to be pretty cheesy fun. Yeah. I mean, there's no comic property to work off of for that one, right? Like uh, the Kingsman, the first one is a Miller book that probably spent a long time in the prepping and refining and then it becomes a success so somebody's got to throw out a screenplay so yeah i thought it was not bad but it certainly lacked the focus and depth of the first one yeah and uh the kick-ass series i mean the first one was fantastic second one was tolerable but i really don't need to see any more i think part of it too for me is i'm not a huge mark miller fan I think when I like his stuff, it's it's sort of despite him rather than because of him. I don't know. Like I, I like his some of his creations, but he's so bleak and he's so kind of nasty-minded that often it just rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, I, I on the other hand enjoy most of his stuff. I will say there are some of his pieces that have been less than stellar, but most of his books I'm on board for. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully it's based on some good material and they've got some some more interesting to go with it. So I've uh, been seeing some news also in the uh, Mark Miller world that Kevin Smith, who hasn't written comic in a long time, is currently doing a Hit Girl miniseries uh, with Miller's property rising out of kick-ass Hit Girl. Oh, that could be fun. Yeah, it's like four issues. I think it'll be fun. Nice. Uh, On a more positive note, Cloak and Dagger are uh, coming 
onto cable now and uh, early word is pretty good about it so i was expressing some skepticism of this of their suitability for a modern uh, tv show but it sounds like um, the creative team has really pulled it off from what i've been hearing yeah i've heard good things too excellent well two uh, episodes first two episodes back to back tomorrow night on showcase very good which if you're listening to this podcast later in the week you have missed by a couple of days <laughs> marvel vans are we talking about uh the shoes yes we are what's going on uh friday a new series of vans uh done by marvel or based on marvel properties came out and i have uh, quite enjoyed the Star Wars ones that have come out, and I have some of the Nintendo ones that came out, and I took a look through some of the Marvel ones, and some of them I quite like. There's a black and white uh, shoe well, it's a, with uh, the women of uh, Marvel superheroes, all the classic uh, female characters. There's a color version of it, which I don't like, but there's just a black and white version of it, which I really do like. And I can't decide whether I can wear it or not. I went and saw the actual shoe on Friday, although I'd seen pictures of it online. But there's a Captain Marvel high top that is just done in the color palette and style of Captain Marvel's uh, outfit. There's nothing immediately about it that screams Captain Marvel other than the top eyelet of the laces is her classic star rather than just a circle that the laces go through. And I really like them, but I can't decide if I would actually wear them. Yeah, I hear you. I'm I'm checking them out right now as, as we speak, and I'm looking at the uh, Vans versus Marvel old school and these... <laughs> Okay, no, I don't think I can wear these. They've got, like, Hulk green soles. They've got cap shield on the heels. we got Thor's wings on the sides. Yeah, that one, no. There's also... The Captain Marvel ones, though, are just on the edge of whether I can get away with it or not, I think. Yeah. There's a really bad uh, canvas top one, the low-cut ones, which is the Hulk's foot, but it has his toes printed out over where your toes would be in the shoe. And I'm like, that one is terrible, but some of them are pretty decent. Yeah. I, I like the more understated ones. It's uh, it's too bad. Too bad they didn't do a few more. Well, we'll uh, definitely drop a link to that in the show notes for, uh, for anyone who wants to geek up their feet. All right. Uh, I think that completes our news section. Yeah. I think, think we need to get on to the take home top three. Oh, which means I have to talk about some stuff. Yes, this week you need to tell me about your favorite toys, as if that's not what we do every week, but <laughs> talk about actually uh, your favorite toys from childhood or lines of toys. All right. So when we did this, you were talking about nostalgia and you specifically said toys. So I did not go with my Atari 2600, which would probably be my sure. favorite childhood toy i went with actual toys that kids play with and again there there were so many that i went with an obscure one that i couldn't stop thinking about once i went back and remembered it uh, i went with one that is still one of my favorite toys that i think about all the time and then i went with a very obvious example so i'll go back and do the obscure one the toy that I, as soon as I started thinking about this exercise that I thought about and remembered playing with and just could not put aside mentally, so I just went with it, is a Bullet Man. Bullet Man. Now, was he a G.I. Joe? He was. Yeah. So Bullet Man was a 1970 toy. It was from what was called the G.I. Joe Adventure Team. Yeah. And the G.I. Joe Adventure Team were sort of non-military-looking G.I. Joes. And I looked a little bit in it, and it was, uh, in, in essence, around about 1968, as the Vietnam War, anti-war sentiment was sort of sweeping, they had a huge decline in their military G.I. Joe toys. So they came out with this line of more like superhero-like G.I. Joes. Yeah. And so Bullet Man was part of the G.I. Joe Adventure Team. And... So Bullet Man had this red uniform, 
And then this helmet that was chrome and shaped like a bullet. So he kind of looked like one of the Dan Aykroyd cone heads <laughs> from those SNL skits, except it was a metal bullet-shaped helmet that fit over top of his head. Yeah. And both of his arms were the same chrome. And the thing that got me into Bullet Man was that he then had uh, worked into the back, his back, poking out through his uniform, two rings uh, along his back so that you could run a wire down it mm -hmm. and put one high and one low and have him shoot along the wire and smash into things with his bullet-shaped head. Nice. And, and so uh, when, as soon as I thought about it, I just remembered... Okay, I'm going to build this complex structure out of blocks and then smash into it with Bullet Man. All right, I'm going to build this structure out of Lego and smash into it with Bullet Man. Okay, I'm going to line up all of my other action figures and see how many of them Bullet Man can rifle through with his bullet-shaped head. Nice. Now, would you ever run like super, super long lines or was it just about the elaborate, you know, target of destruction? Yeah, I didn't remember running super long lines. I think but I could stand to be corrected that it actually came with a line in the package. And I don't know if I ever got beyond that, Okay. but uh, yeah, and it was really just about in this like play area that we had in the basement of our house, there was a high shelf that was perfect to tie it to and yeah. then find something heavy on the ground and then build something in between the two so that he could <laughs> smash through it. That's cool. I, I, you know, every toy from that era, because there were so many fewer toys, it seems like, at least, uh, I either had them or I wanted them, and that one was one that I, I always coveted from the uh, the Sears catalog, so that's pretty sweet. Uh, what's number two? Uh, number two, I always think of it as one of my favorite toys of all time, but having now talked about the first one, I realize it's kind of on the same theme of smashing, <laughs> and that was uh, Kenner's Smash Up Derby. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, so this toy was two vehicles, and the classic I had was it was a blue Volkswagen Bug and a red pickup truck. And they had those rip cords that you pulled through them so that they would take off. Yeah. And they came, the set came with two ramps. And the idea was you get one person with one on one side of the ramp, one ramp, one person with the other, and you run them as fast as you can. They fly off the ramps and they hit each other. So they would hit each other and then just do the doors would fly off, the hood would fly off, the wheels would go flying. And it was all about how spectacular a crash can you make with these things. Yeah. And the, the crazy thing was that they really didn't work that well because you <laughs> the ripcord system ran not on like four wheels on the vehicle, but one big honking wheel on the bottom that rubbed them <laughs> along. So the ability to actually aim or drive in a straight direction was not there. So something like 70% of the time you'd get all geared up, you'd put them all yeah. back together, get all the pieces on, you'd rev them, and they would like totally miss each other yeah. and then just land on the ground. So it was like the anticipation of like the, you know, three in 10 times that you ran them at each other, that they actually hit each other and smashed and pieces went flying everywhere. And I just remember as they got played with more and more, like eventually it's like, I don't think that piece was supposed to come off as <laughs> they like kind of just got more and more battered up. I am curious, did, uh, did Bullet Man ever encounter one of the Smash Up Derby vehicles? Yeah, I don't remember the interaction. Between, seems seems like they... a, a mashup uh, of the, of the <laughs> ages, really. Yeah, if you got a ramp on either side yeah. and ran a line down between the two ramps and try and time Bullet Could Man Malachi in the cars all coming. Bullet Man. <laughs> the Malachi Crunch. Nice. Okay. Yeah, so I love that uh, that toy. It still stands as, in terms of my memory, one of my favorite toys of all time. And every once in a while, I'll go on eBay and start looking for a set. But anything even close to being complete in terms of having most of the original parts sells for well over $200. And I just can't justify dumping $200 on a I, I wonder if um, we've started to see in, in the board game world, uh, there's a company called Restoration Games that's taking old classic uh, board games and tweaking them a little bit and reissuing them on Kickstarter. I wonder if something like that could ever happen in the toy world or if the rights and properties are, are too tied up because uh, I think there are a lot of people 
of our generation who would love a cool new Smash Up Derby set. Yeah, I honestly think I can't imagine that kids today who I mean I still see kids obsessed with cars. Uh, there's a stage like of childhood sure. that kids go through where they are like obsessed with cars that if you put this out as a toy that and I mean all kids I think are obsessed with destroying things as well. So <laughs> I I I can't imagine this still not, potentially being a popular toy today as well as for the nostalgia. Maybe we need to get on this. This could be our our next <laughs> our next venture. Our Kickstarter. Yeah. Bring back Smash Up Derby. All right. Uh, okay. So those were two awesome picks. Uh, what did what did you save the best for last? I saved the totally obvious one for last. Okay. I, I think I guess what it is. I'm guessing it's gonna have to be Lego. <laughs> no, it isn't. Oh. The Star Wars toys. Yeah, Star Wars figures. Absolutely. Yeah. So I. Between myself and uh, my friend Jason Nyhouse at the time, we had uh, almost every figure from the first two movies, mm -hmm. and uh, he seemed to have very generous parents, had all of the big expensive sets uh, of start. So he had the Millennium Falcon, he had that Death Star set, I had my like Land Speeder and a TIE Fighter, he had an X-Wing Fighter, so we, we essentially had all of the props. And then what we had were those little digest-sized comic books that were just comic recreations of the movies, which we would essentially use as a script, and then we would just act out the entire films from start to finish with all of the dialogue, all of the voices, we did our best Darth Vader and our best Yoda voices, and basically every time we got together was that, and we just acted through the entire movie playing out every scene with the figures, the ships and reading through all the dialogue in these digest comics that we had. Yeah. It's uh yeah, I, I loved the star Wars toys too. And it was the thing that kind of amazes me to look back on them is that the play sets, the little dioramas that they would sell. So there was one for Hoth, there was one for Dagobah and they really were just um, kind of neat, you know, set pieces and they would ha each have two or three kind of gimmicky little actions that would happen. Um, and, you know, those gimmicky actions really didn't have a lot of shelf life, but just the set piece um, for when you're a kid and just having those scenes happen in the right place, that was awesome for me. Because I think, you know, I, I can kind of remember squinting up my eyes to make everything look right and... Um, yeah, those those figures got a lot of longevity out of me too. Oh, I love the Death Star one, and uh, uh, as opposed to some of the others, I like the gimmicky little action because it had a hallway at the upper level that was that had Princess Leia's jail cell on it. Yeah. And then partway down the hallway, it had a a chute that you shove the characters in, and they went down to the lower part and fell into the trash compactor. And the trash compactor had a little wheel that you could turn, and the walls would close in. And it had all these little foam and plastic pieces to represent the garbage in the trash compactor. And it included the little, like, monster tentacle thing. <laughs> so you had the three-story Barbie house version of Death Star, correct? Jason had the three-story okay. Barbie house version of the Death Star, yeah. Uh, did you have, or did you had you seen the uh, sort of hemisphere cardboard version? No, I didn't. I don't remember that one. I mean, I remember it existing, but I don't remember ever playing with it. I actually had that one, and uh, I, apparently it's quite rare. It was a Canadian release only. So instead of like a tall vertical structure, this was um, a really elaborate construction of uh, of like pasteboard that formed like a, a semi, like a hemisphere, basically. And it had two stories, um, but it had, I don't think it has as many, had as many sort of doodads as the uh, the tall set, but it had amazing artwork. So it all had like really good forced perspective. Like every wall was painted like you could see down the hall. Like it had like sort of wily e. Coyote um, the way, you know, he would paint, <laughs> paint depth onto a flat surface. They did that yeah. really well. So it was like every angle you could spin this thing around and look at different rooms and see like five rooms in every room. It was very cool. So the second half of why I picked the Star Wars toy was 
uh, longevity and tie into more recent times. So although I got rid of eventually almost all of my other toys, I had that uh, Darth Vader head-shaped carrying case for the action figures. And so when I was getting rid of all my other toys, I think my parents were moving, I packed it full of like every action figure that I could still find and stored it for years Mm -hmm. and then when uh, my first son was born and started getting older I pulled it I went and got it out of storage and pulled it out and I wound up doing the same thing with him although I didn't have all the the ships and the other pieces but I would just take the 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 action figures out dump them on the ground and then just basically start acting out the movies for him so that and eventually he would just I mean, he couldn't talk even yet, but he just wanted to sit and have me talk to him. (laughs) So he would go over, grab the Darth Vader head, open it up, dump every single one on the floor, and then he would just push them at me and say, stories, tell me (laughs) stories. And it was always, and I was like, well, the easiest thing to do is just do the movies. So I was just basically take the characters and go through, without a script or anything, my recollection of all three movies. Uh, Good times. Well, that's some good nerding out, my friend. It is. So or was. Yeah. Um, so do you have an assignment for me for next week? Yeah, I was going to go back to comics. Okay. We haven't touched on comics for a while. And do, for you uh, starting to read comics, the most uh, three most influential either single issues uh, series or arcs or stories mm. for you uh, when you were first getting into comics that sort of cemented you in the genre. Cool. That's going to be fun. I know what number one is right now without even having to think about it, but I'll have to dig a little bit for number two and three. All right. Should be fun. Cool. Sounds like a plan. Um, we will do that next week. But until then, we need to sign off and let people get on with their lives. <laughs> People including us. (laughs) Yeah, let's do that. So you can catch us every Wednesday on the Podbean app, on iTunes, on the Google Play Store, and sort of kind of on Spotify, although we don't really know what they're doing with our feed. We'd also love to hear from you, so leave us a comment in one of those locations, or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at TotallySortOf, or email us directly at hello at TotallySortOf.com. You can get links to everything we've talked about in the show notes, and we'd also like to thank Kabana Black for permission to use the song Punk as our intro. Uh, Until next time, I'm Chris McInnes. And I'm Darren Hogan. And you've been listening to the Totally Sort of Podcast. Talk to you later, buddy. You bet, pal.